was following me, I 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 was following me. Hey, welcome back to Postscript, a podcast about how the internet changed soccer analysis. I'm John Muller, and with me is Teodal Football. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Long time no see, John. Yeah, this is episode six. It's been just a minute since episode five, but, uh, you know, uh, one nice thing about doing a, a podcast about football blogging history is that it only gets more historical the longer we wait between episodes. Uh, yeah, with, with every direct message or random tweet where everyone really politely says, Hey, are you guys like done? Or are you going to do another one? I, I swear to God, we have tried. I think every, every week for six months, we've tried to do this next episode. We we haven't been like working strenuously on the content of this episode. We, it was, it was as ready as it was ever going to be six months ago. We just haven't been able to do it, but what, what were we talking about? So we had done, we had done four episodes on uh, nerdy, uh, blogging of the soccer variety that was numbers based and analytics based, and then you had introduced us to it. We had we had pivoted towards tactics for a bit. That's right. We said we were going to do a little tactics detour, and so the last episode where we left off, uh, we talked about Pep Guardiola, the surprise uh, proto tactics blogger who wrote a newspaper column in the aughts uh, that kind of pointed the way, I think, towards a different type of tactics writing than we were seeing in English at that time. Uh, mostly because we just weren't seeing a lot of like, you know, detailed or thoughtful tactics writing in English uh, during that decade. And by the end of that decade, that had changed radically. And that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah. When you think about tactics blogging uh, and, you, and you think about the time period where our analytics bloggers were sort of starting, 08, 09, 10, 2010, uh, you're thinking about the, the two gentlemen we're talking about on, on the podcast today, which is Jonathan Wilson and Michael Cox. Now, I hope that everybody listening to this podcast knows those names, right? Inverting the Pyramid is is the first book that every soccer nerd reads. Uh, and, and Michael Cox was, I think for a lot of people, the first nerdy soccer blog that everybody read. You know, sort of like how the analytics arc that we started in episode one started with references to a book, Soccernomics, which Chris Anderson and others were reading, and Moneyball, a book that other analytics bloggers were reading. In one way, uh, Wilson's book starts us off on this tactics arc in this similar way, where there's a book everyone reads, it inspires bloggers. What's interesting about him is he's technically blogging before he writes uh, this book, if you, I mean, it's blog in name, at least. So the, the Guardian had what they called a sport blog, uh, which, you know, when uh, media companies try to do blogs, they are not the same kind of blogs as we've yeah, been talking we, about there. We talked about this during the Gordiola episode, how like the, the line between college yeah. blogs was kind of blurred at the time. Uh, so they were labeling Wilson stuff blogs. It was essentially yeah. still just like short kind of breezy internet columns, right? Yeah, and, and so I, I date him to like 2002 on this Guardian sport blog, and he's writing about a bunch of stuff that is not tactics at this time. Uh, he has a keen interest in, I, I would say, 
behind the Iron Curtain type Eastern European soccer you know, stories that are not getting covered by other outlets. Um, the sort of you know borderlining on the political, on the on the sort of social side of things as well. He's like a much more omnibus soccer writer than than a a, a, a tactics uh, author. Uh, and yeah. it's funny. I mean, I, I I pulled up like one of the. I pulled up, I was like, what was he blogging about before during the pyramid? Because it's just, there's not a lot of tactics here. Right. And, and in fact, the first tactics piece I see is like where he's actually talking, where he's writing like we would expect him to in Inverting the Pyramid. Um, he, he's he's basically doing press for the book that's about to come out. So it's it's absent until he gets this book job to do the, the history of tactics. But it's funny, I did grab... You know, there was a, a profile he wrote about a manager in April of 2007, this guy, Hristos Deutschkov, who, who was managing Celta Vigo at the time. And I like in the opening, it opens with this quote from this coach that says, I do not watch opposition games on video and neither do my players. It is boring. I do not believe in tactics. <laughs> so I, I, I laughed because this is literally a random one I clicked into trying to figure out get a sense of what he was writing about before and writing the pyramid and and it gives you this like i mean there's there's context here this is actual coach saying this which is bizarre and then he did not last at this job very long yeah i mean but, it sounds like dereliction of duty from a coach i think what's, yeah. what's particularly funny about the speaker here is that Stoichkov was a great uh barcelona attacker under johan cruyff uh when he was <laughs> in barcelona from 1990 to 95 Stoichkov was there uh, then he, he left for a little bit. I think he went to Parma for a year and he came back, uh, under Bobby Robson and then Louis van Gaal came in, uh, for Stoichkov's last season in Barcelona and van Gaal, who's, you know, the father of positional play immediately benched Stoichkov. So maybe, they, maybe they had some differences. He did come to MLS actually and played under Bob Bradley after that, uh, at Chicago in 2000. Damn it. I did not know that. I, well, it, I mean, it's funny just if you think about, again, the, the context of all nerdy soccer blogging starts uh, in, and in some environment of disbelief from the mainstream. And that's the same with tactics writing as well, I think, you know, and the, especially in the English language, as you mentioned, like in the last episode, there's some suspicion about this as like being overly thoughtful about the game. And even in the coaching ranks, pupils of the great, you know, historical tactical minds that, that Wilson will write about uh, in his book, you still have this just you know, atmosphere of suspicion around tactics. And, um, you know, I think we all have our battles with it even today, but there's a, it starts in this very strange place to be writing. A, and this is why this is like the first book on tactics. And, and, and the last thing that we should note there is that, of course, Stoichkov's teammate at Barcelona under Johan Cruyff, uh, this, this one guy who didn't believe in tactics was playing alongside Pep Guardiola uh, in that Barcelona team. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot. It's such a loaded, it's such a loaded uh, opening scene there, and we can't even really, but analyze it all on this one. But 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 I I do think that you know, Stoichkov, what Stoichkov is saying there, yeah, he's being a little bit controversial. That's that's sort of how he is. But it wasn't really that far off how a lot of coaches coached for for a lot of the history of the game. You know, it's yeah, uh, and and. You know, you and I have talked, and we're going to continue to talk throughout this tactics arc about uh, in what ways coaches, you know, really influence players uh, in the tactical decisions that they make on the field. Uh, and you know, tactics have always been part of the game, but uh, maybe they haven't always been as micromanaged uh, by coaches as they are today. 
And so it wasn't like wildly offensive for Stoichkov to say, like, you know, I kind of let my players do their own thing. Uh, today, I think maybe that would get a lot more blowback than it probably did at the time. It is, but it's it's also worth mentioning there's this inherent tension that we will return to. We won't litigate it all today, but between the analytics side of an out, soccer analysis and tactics around what's more important, players or coaches, and we've we've referenced it before, we'll get to it again. But it's again, yeah, that it is it's circular. This whole these levels of conflicts between the way people think about the game. But it's it's a good way to set the stage because like not yeah. only was was tactics writing you know almost non-existent in the English world at that particular moment, uh, but also coaches were allowed to say things like this in uh, the largest you know newspapers on the planet. Uh, so so it was, it was a different world. And into this world comes Jonathan Wilson, who uh, rises from the obscurity of the Guardian's blogs about you know Hungarian soccer or whatever to uh, to write. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I I should mention here, um, I I have had my own uh, journey with inverting the pyramid. I think I read it three times. I think the first time I read it, it was my first introduction to soccer tactics, and I was like, this is really great, and learned a lot. And then I read it again, and I was like, I don't know, this, I'm not sure if I buy a lot of this stuff. Mm. And then I, and then I read it more recently, uh, and I kind of fell in love with it again for what it is and what it isn't from in terms of tactical writing. So we're going to we're going to get to Michael Cox and we're going to we're going to launch our way towards future tactics blogging as well. It's important to contrast what he's doing in this book against what what we think about as tactics blogging today. Um, he is more so writing a history of tactics and he's doing it in a very like I don't know, critical theory, almost sort of historical way of evaluating different factors, influencing ideas and material factors, influencing ideas and politics and all the, all the stuff he's interested in. He turns it into this history of tactics. It is not tactical analysis uh, with like a capital A, I would say. I, I, that feels like it's worth saying here. Um, although we'll get into sort of how he, how he sort of talks about this stuff. But but one, we should, one we should reason... probably also note on that that you know when you're writing a tactics history, num number one you have to make it interesting, and I think that Wilson yeah. does a good job, like you know breaking this into narrative chunks, like showing us different parts of the world, telling us stories, you know, around certain coaches or, or players or whatnot. But he's also limited by his primary materials, right? And yeah. if if there's not a lot of tactics writing it's very hard to reconstruct the tactics history uh, in any great detail of like, you know, Hungary in the 1940s, uh, which actually that's a bad example because they did do a great job of writing about it. <laughs> but, but there are many other parts of the world, many other decades uh, where, you know, you're, you're, you're probably limited in what you have to draw on in trying to explain how exactly teams play. You just have these broad characterizations like, okay, Herbert Chapman played a, a you know, WM and, uh, you know, this other team played a carpet weaving style, and then you have to somehow, like, okay, what does that mean? What what does that look like on the pitch, right? Yeah, the work that would have gone into this history too is immense, and I think you know he went and interviewed people, he read source material in different languages all around the world. It's 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 a totally different effort than writing a blog post, and I think Wilson would have loved probably to have found uh, what we've tried to uncover on on the deleted blog post of of your of, of a, a detailed web of hyperlinked commented upon correspondence between soccer thinkers and 
ideas being developed. He would have loved to have started his history with a well-recorded soccer tactics blogging record or something like that, right? But he did not. Um, and the other thing that that I just to contrast him with sort of where where we'll go is, you know, um, I, I have this idea about tactics. Tactics is always uh, it's hard to define what soccer tactics is, but when we when we chart the history of tactics as he does in this book. Um, we'll see that tactics is always sort of a a response to a response to and building upon previous tactical ideas. Like the way teams play is constantly evolving and cyclical and coming back around to old ideas and new ideas. And coaches and other other players and, and other thinkers of the game are always thinking about ways to respond to the sort of current conditions and the current way teams are playing, which develops re responses to that backlashes to that and it's sort of this uh like like no one would ever think about tactics by starting with a blank slate of the physics of the ball and the cognitive and physical um conditions of the players the dimensions of the field and the rules of the game and say i'm going to develop a tactical idea i think i've seen one malio give uh, a lecture that exactly that <laughs> god damn it but, nobody, <laughs> but it's like nobody less crazy than him would do that but, yeah well, see, like that, but that's even almost how like analytics bloggers would think, right? They're like, we've got this objective data. We're going to throw it into a machine. It's going to spit out objective answers. We're going to slowly chip away at what we think is the truth of the game. Like maybe if you're trying to solve soccer, right? But to think about tactics, to try to solve soccer that way, you're never starting from scratch. You're responding to what is out there. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to see this, you know, when, when Michael Cox is blogging, I guess, on marking, he's watching the games. Right, and he's doing tactical write-ups on the games. While a tactical thinker starts with what's in front of him, Wilson has to like, he has to decide where he's going to start telling the story. The the point is, it's really hard to start somewhere. Tactics is always sort of responding to something that that exists. For, for some reason, the beginning of his book has always been the most compelling to me. Anyway, so he's going to chart out the history of tactics from Victorian private schools, public schools in England to the WM, to Hungary, Brazil's 424, the Catanaccio in Italy, and Labanovsky and, and Renas Mikkels and Sachi and Guardiola and the rest. He's going to go the whole, like, he's going to invert the pyramid, which is his main motif uh, of, of talking about the formation as a thing. Mm -hmm. But he's going to start in such a strange, it's a very difficult place to start, but I find it really compelling. So I, what do you yeah, think? Should we, should we read yeah, from it or absolutely. do we do it? All right. So he, he says, uh, in the beginning, there was chaos and soccer was without form. It's just a, incredibly biblical um, very, very, uh, coloring here. It's too heavy handed, but I still like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the modern sport has its roots in the mob game in medieval Britain. Rules and as much as they existed at all varied from place to place. But the, the game was essentially involved, essentially involved two teams trying to force a roughly spherical object to a target at opposite ends of a notional field. It was violent, unruly, and anarchic, and it was repeatedly outlawed. Mm -hmm. Only in the early 19th century, when the public schools, their thinking shaped by advocates of muscular Christianity, decided that sports could be harnessed for the moral edification of their students, did anything approaching what we would today recognize as soccer emerge. Mm 
the boom came in the early Victorian era and was rooted in the idea that the empire was in decline and the moral turpitude was somehow to blame. Team sports, it was thought, were to be promoted because they discouraged solipsism and solipsism allowed masturbation to flourish. And there could be nothing more debilitating than that. <laughs> in the beginning, but, it was chaos and masturbation. and then Yeah. Yeah. The origins of tactics writing. And, uh, <laughs> uh, some would say the entire history of tactics writing. Yeah, some people are screaming right now uh, listening. But uh, he says, but in those early days, rules varied from school to school, largely according to conditions. Uh, at, at Cheltenham and rugby, for instance, with their wide open fields, the game differed little from the mob game. A player could fall on the ground, be fallen upon by a great many of his fellows, and emerge from the mud relatively unscathed. In the cloisters of Charterhouse and Westminster, though, such rough and tumble play would have led to broken bones. So it was there that the dribbling game developed. Hmm. That outlawed or at least restricted handling of the ball, but the team still differed radically from modern, uh, the game still differed radically from modern soccer. Formations were unheard of while the length of the game, even the number of players on each side were still to be established. Essentially, prefects or roller pupils would run with the ball at their feet, their teammates lined up behind them, backing up in case the ball bounced loose in a tackle while opposition players would try to stop them. The game was about dribbling, passing, cooperation. The, sorry, the game was about dribbling. Yeah. Semicolon. Yeah. <laughs> this is important. Passing, cooperation, and defending were perceived as somehow inferior. Head right. down charging certainly was to be preferred thinking a manifestation, some would say, of the English attitude to life in general. <laughs> so like this... Tactics writing has to start somewhere with how the game is played at the beginning. And I, I think the closest he comes to, to saying it is this idea of backing up, where the senior students at the, the charter schools ran with the ball and their sort of, you know, pledges behind them, uh, ran behind them, backing them up for the inevitable disruption and uh, tackling and the ball bouncing around and then picking it up and charging again. Right. Yeah. So he starts his history without. I mean, I guess it's without tactics, but that's that's probably a, you know, a question for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the mob game that he's describing would be the like, the primordial state before tactics. But I think that it's interesting that the original impulse for tactics, as Wilson tells the story, is a moral one. Uh, you know, it's it's not strategic uh it's not aesthetic even you know there's there's this like english honor code that goes into the dribbling game right we're not yeah. going to pass uh we're we're, we're going to charge right into it we're going to you know take the pain with a stiff upper lip or whatever uh, and and so tactics were, were formed by that and i think that we you know really like even today like there's there's a lot of kind of we we maybe don't explore it as much but there's a lot of moral reasoning uh, that underlies our tactics that's not just about like what's the best way to win the game but what is the right way to play uh soccer right that's still a, a, something that i think informs a lot of how we think about tactics yeah it is it is not that's a good point it's not what informs the sort of data based analysis where they're like how do we score goals what kind of passes lead to goals and what how many passes you know charles reap how many passes in a possession lead to goal scoring and these sorts of things to outcome base it starts with a moral base uh it would be a you know dereliction of my duties to pass the ball because then i would not face uh you know with a stiff upper lip the 
conflict in front of me, the conflict facing our great nation. I think that there is always this tension between, you know, is is there a better way to play, uh, you know, analytics might point the way to, or just, you know, kind of reasoning about risk and reward and, and pragmatic tactics might point to versus the sort of yeah. tactics that, that have this moral or aesthetic grounding. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's the main passage um, I wanted to read from Wilson, not because there's not a ton of great passages in this book. And I, I think if you haven't read it, you should, you know, he's going to chart the history of tactics and, with all these great thinkers and great personalities and introduce all these different, you know, additions to the, the tactical model, like starting with the pass, uh, the Scots inventing passes um, and sort of what comes from that. And as, and, and importantly, all along his tactical history, I think I mentioned this, but it, you know, it, it's grounded in changes to the rules of the game. Oftentimes, you will see major tactical shifts in his history here, including you know total football in Holland, based on things like the changes in the offside rule. Um, you'll also see him focusing on you know material changes um, to fitness and political changes, um, and, you know Franco Spain and all these different things. They sort of so he doesn't he doesn't abstract tactics fully away from the, the history of the world. Nor should he. And. And then I, I think, um, you know, the possibly the the other thing to cover here with Wilson would be his unit of account as as to how he tells the history of tactics is is basically still uh, important matches, oftentimes between international sides, but sometimes between you know important club matches. And very, and very frequently focused on World Cups just because that was, you know, the only time that uh, sort of ideas from different schools came together, right? And were tested yeah. each other, and the world was able to watch these things. And importantly, like a lot of people, you know, wrote about these games. So it's easy to reconstruct what was going on tactically. And, and when he, he covers these, um, these matches, he will often show a diagram, yeah. um, which is like the, you know, to describe it on a podcast, it's like the full vertical pitch. Um, and he, the way he shows it normally is like two teams in their quote unquote formations, um, not overlapping one another. That's what I was uh, going to ask. I, I, it's been a while since I've read yeah. that, but he doesn't show sort of, yeah, a full pitch where you, you've got the team sort of intermingling with one another. It's, it's one team in its own half and, a you know, WM and one team in the other half in a two three five or whatever, right? That's right. Yeah, forwards are facing each other. The goal, you know, the defenders are far away, and and I, the, he I, might. The idea is strictly to show us, you know, the idealized starting formation for each team. Yeah, yeah, and the, and well, we'll we'll get to other like ideas of what this might look like, how you might diagram, you know, a team's general layout on the pitch. But this yeah. is probably a reasonable way that we still if like if i open fought mob or sofa score right now uh to yeah. look at the lineup before the game that's still what i see right that's right and, and it, i think it introduces this very first conflict with tactics writing that will follow it through the blogs which is how how do you get your ideas across when you're trying to actually do tactical analysis or you're trying to talk about the mechanics of tactics um what's the right medium for that he starts it with this very basic very static you know, almost um, Renaissance, you know, analogizing like just static 
symmetrical, almost um, very plain formations. When I first read it, I thought it was very helpful. Um, but but he's also not, you know, in the in the text, he's not necessarily always pulling that apart and describing the interplays and all these things. He's often telling more of a broad brush history to accompany them. But one reason we're not going to linger on Wilson is that he's not a blog, right? And that's what our subject matter is. And while Wilson did, I think, inspire and inform a lot of bloggers, uh, he was doing a, a different type of project. And it seems almost like a little silly to criticize a book for being static. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's only, uh, he, he does have, you know, he's got great prose. He describes these things, uh, but you know, the diagrams uh, were necessarily static and that wasn't necessarily a limitation for the tactics bloggers who would follow. They had more possibilities and more, uh, you know, ways that they could think about, hey, how can we show tactics to people? And I think that we're going to, we're going to discuss that as we go along this tactics arc. I, I think that that leads us in into zonal marking. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. So like this book, uh, Inverting the Pyramid came out in what, 2008? Is that right? Yeah, I'm doing, yeah, it's, it, we're rusty, but I, uh, I should use dates more. It's September of 08, I think is where I, is where I see it published for the first time when I'm going back. So he's blogging before that 02 to 08. Yeah. Starts, starts talking about tactics right around 08 when he's releasing this book. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's helpful just to help kind of place it in the context of the timeline that we've already been tracking. Like we saw uh, the think tank was like circa 2000 to, you know, ongoing into the, into the, yeah. but uh, really we saw our first soccer blogs. The the people that we talked about came along in summer of 2010, 2010. Yeah. 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 When yeah that's right. No, Howard Hamilton's zone nine. Howard Sanderson's was, summer yeah, 2010. Yeah. So, so really the analytics blogs are like, barely getting off the ground uh, and then inverting the pyramid hits. And I think that that kind of really, you know, flipped a light switch for a lot of people that, Hey, what we're seeing on TV uh, doesn't necessarily describe the game in as much detail as it could. It doesn't think about how and why, you know, players are moving and, and behaving the way that they do. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm saying this because I know this was Michael Cox's origin story was that, you know, this, this 20, 21 year old guy, however old he was, was sitting at home watching Sky Sports and, and whatever yeah. else in England and saying, like, this commentary sucks. Like, explain how the game actually works, right? And why is nobody doing this? And, you know, he had read Wilson, but he hadn't read much else that was doing this. And so he said, I'll, yeah, I'll start a blog. And that's what's great about blogs, right? Well, and he was damned right. Like, there, there. You can, you can find here and there random blogs doing ran, you know, random tactical analysis here and there. But like, I mean, I remember zonal marking um, happening. It was a phenomenon amongst, you know, curious soccer minds. It captured the imagination, I think, of everyone that reads blogs. Really, I mean, soccer blogs. But, but also beyond that, obviously, he, he quickly parlays it into, um, you know, full time work as well. But I. You know, we sometimes do uh, music analogies here, um, uh, the postscript. And I think about, I think there's like, a, like an old saying about the Velvet Underground that it, it's something like, okay, I didn't even look it up. It's something like maybe a thousand people saw them live, but every single one of them started a band. Yeah. Every, like every single person that saw them play live started a band. Um, 
And I think about that way with Michael Cox here, where like, God damn, if so many readers of his were like, oh yeah, I, I can do nerdy soccer blogging too. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, cause he, cause he's sitting there going, well, there's not, to your point that like he's, he's like this, there's nothing like this out there and we can just do it because like, that's the thing about blogging. You can. Nobody's stopping you from writing something totally. Yeah. Different. Yeah. That appears to just be the genesis of this. Right. And, and um, it's not that costly to watch a game that everyone else is interested in and then write your analysis. Uh, it, it's actually, it's much easier to do that than what Wilson had to go through to, to build a, a history, you know, back to the primordial uh, days of soccer. So a, as we transition over to, yeah, we go from uh, Wilson and, and history, uh, the history of tactics using these sort of important matches as his unit of account where he milestones, where he, mm-hmm. he jumps in and talks about the changes in tactical shifts. And then here's Michael Cox, you know, watching Chelsea versus Manchester United in November of 2009. Yeah, so Wilson gets to pick from like the great games of history to tell his tactical narrative, uh, whereas Cox, as a blogger, is very frequently just kind of commenting on whatever the interesting game was last weekend. And I think that when you do that uh, sort of more quotidian type of analysis, you have to grapple with like okay how much of this game was really what we might call tactics right and how much was something yeah. else you start kind of being a little bit more honest with yourself and how you tell these stories i don't know yeah that's really good and so i know where you're going with this and uh it so we were transitioning from the unit of account of match reports that wilson was doing to to zone marking and michael cox and to your point there's something really disarming about watching what's in front of you and then trying to uh pull tactic tactical insights out of it and 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 uh it's um and so in some ways it's more uh more realist than the more classical uh more poetic uh history of, of jonathan wilson so this the first post we, we're going to read from then is he's watching he's watching chelsea versus manchester united in november of 2009 so again just timestamp. Um, September 08 is inverting the pyramid, and Cox has read that. We can we we know that because before we get into this, he's got like a bibliography link on his on his blog. If you pull it up on the old archive, zonal marking is deleted. This is the customary part of the podcast where we mentioned that the the blog is deleted, uh, but you can find it on the Internet Archive. So when when you navigate to this blog post, I mean the first thing that jumps out you have to say is is the diagram on the left. This is the trademark zonal marking Michael Cox diagram on the left. It it's got the formations of the two teams, but different than than Jonathan Wilson, he's got them overlapped, uh, such that the striker is sort of nestled between the two center backs. Rooney is sitting there with Terry and Carvalho, and Jarugba and Anelka are sort of pairing off in their sort of four four two diamond against the back four Evans and Brown for Manchester yeah. United. And this is pretty high up in the post, right? So you're like your eye is probably drawn to this before you even start reading the description. You kind of can look yeah. at it, see here how here are how the teams are laid out. Dare now, I say I, I would maybe not would not have read the post uh, as hmm. my young uh, you know early twenties self. If you hadn't seen the diagram next to if, it, yeah, if there wasn't a diagram. No, um, I, I cut you off while you were describing the diagram because it's not just like that there are two formations that are interlocked. There's there's a little bit more nuance going on here, right? Yeah, he's got some arrows 
So he's got yeah. he's got not too many arrows, not so many arrows that it's totally meaningless. But he's got Ryan Giggs off on the left wing, and he's got an, an arrow pointed inwards. He's cutting inside Giggs is, um, and then he shows Evra overlapping, sort of with an exaggerated vertical line on to Giggs's left. And then he's he's also got some some like almost tick mark references in here where he's kind of he's going to talk about certain things in this diagram in his post. I, I also want to, I, I want to keep talking about the diagram. I love the diagram. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just think these are idealized formations still, right? It's not something that you're ever going to see in an actual game situation because there's, there's almost no situation where like both teams are spread out the full width of the pitch and yes. they're in like something like their, you know, quote unquote, starting formation, you know, we're, we're seeing, uh, I think Chelsea in a four diamond two and United in a four two three one or something. But yeah. even within those idealized starting formations, he's also trying to communicate something by adjusting some players' positions like slightly deeper, or sw- slightly wider left. And it it almost starts to look yeah. like average position uh, viz that you might see generated from actual data. And that's again, not quite what he's doing, but you know, the way that he uses, the arrows and the way that he uses the subtle gradations in position, he's trying to kind of paint us a picture of how these players moved within this formation. Yes, that is great, and it and it it, it is, I, to my knowledge, sort of revolutionary for the for the moment. To your point, this is not realistic. A realistic formation would, depending on the phase of play, maybe all you know twenty outfielder how many outfielders are in the one half sort of it's, bunkering yeah. and throwing. I don't know how many outfielders there are. <laughs> we got to delete the whole podcast now. <laughs> we are, uh, John and I are drinking single malt scotch. Uh, uh, but yeah, a, a, a realistic uh, uh, formation would, would have something, yeah, more, much more like you would see in a screenshot. Right. But it, it it's funny, like it kind of mirrors I mean I'm in a reference to like Renaissance earlier. I think that was the wrong era. But like in, in art history, you have like there there's a period where there's like very straight symmetrical lines that are not realistic but highly idealized. Mm-hmm. And then you have a period where there's like a little bit it's a little bit more realistic. There's like more dimensions, there's three dimensions. And I think uh Cox zonal marking posts are um sort of that. He's show it's still abstracted to your point. You've got this, you know. No, at no point would you see uh, on the on the the wide angle tactical view formations that looked like this relative to each other because they're almost they're they're almost they're kind of they're they're kind of drawn to be interacting with each other the way soccer works but they're also drawn so that the reader can like pick out these more broad themes mm-hmm. and and you know when you take an art history class uh, any professor is always at pains to say like look the reason that they didn't, uh, you know, paint something more lifelike wasn't because they couldn't do couldn't, it. Yeah. Right? Uh, and and I think that that's also true here, right? Like obviously Michael yeah. Cox is a very close watcher of the game and he could have showed us a specific game situation, uh, but that in some ways would lose some of the things that you gain by showing this high level abstraction. Uh, and, and so that's a tension that you always have in tactics writing and in particular in tactics diagrams is, you know, to what extent are we trying to show the details of a particular situation, which is always how tactics actually happens, right? It always happens in very specific situations, uh, you know, decisions made based on whether this defender is one meter to the left or not. But if you're trying to convey, you know, kind of the big ideas of tactics, you have to abstract away from that. And these diagrams, I think, kind of manage that tension in a really nice way that 
as you said, I, I hadn't seen before. And if it was out there before, you know, this was kind of it's certainly hitting a lot of readers for the first time. Your analogy to, to data viz, to data visualization on the on the analytics side is really apt here as well, because that what is data you you can't show data in its very specific particular form, the moment where there's players occupying this pocket and this, this other thing. Uh, it's hard to show an exact uh, raw data, right? You summarize it into a, a visualization that is readable. And with that come all sorts of problems, right? So, so Cox is doing something very, very cool here. Something that caught my eye uh, over a decade ago. This abstracted formation thing is because this is how people like learn things too. Like I, I do think there are like large um, swaths of of soccer fans and readers that do think about the game as almost like existing in these formations. Okay, and, so we've talked a lot about how he diagrams it. Now let's yeah, yeah. how he writes about it. Yeah, so he starts this piece with a uh, topic uh, dear to hearts. He says football is not chess. <laughs> and he's wrong about that, obviously, because it is just chess. Uh, no, he's, he says football is not chess. Uh, formations and tactics don't always win games. Mm. Uh, God, I, let me get. I guess let me get to the end of this like two sentence paragraph. I already want to stop it. Yeah, no, read, read the whole thing. Yeah. We'll come back. All right, we're not going to forget that sentence. But we're not going to read the whole post. He's he's also got chalkboards in here and stuff. There's a lot. There's a lot going on in this post. But anyways, football is not chess. Formations and tactics don't always win games. Today was one of those days. The only goal of the game came from a refereeing decision that was frankly incorrect. He's a crotchety old man at the age of 20 <laughs> already. He's always been Cox. I love it. Yeah. However, uh, since this is a blog focusing upon tactics, uh, we shall try to ignore that error of judgment and instead look at the game as a whole. That's a great decision because talking about refereeing decisions is stupid. Yeah. Um, so he says, uh, and you know, the, the graphics right here, but he says, it's hard to find fault with Sir Alex Ferguson today. Look at the match statistics and it's difficult to say that United did not have the better of the game. 61% of the possession in the second half. That looked like, that sounded like a statistic to me. Uh, the first half was 50-50. 12 attempts on goal to Chelsea's eight, seven corners to Chelsea's nine, away from home. Yes, these facts mean nothing if not converted into goals, but a manager can only hope to dominate possession and create more chances both of which United did. The poor shooting from United today was not Ferguson's fault. And from a purely tactical point of view, United dominated. I thought the opening to this, like for an early uh, tactics blog post, the opening of this is like so loaded for our historical, you know, storytelling perspective. Mm -hmm. It's like, he like put this in here for us to bump 2023. You've really got to admire starting a, a tactics blog, you know, being like so enthusiastic about tactics that you start this whole website. And then like one of the yeah. first things you write is that like, actually, you know, tactics don't win games. Yeah. I watched the game and there was no, there's no, yeah, the tactics didn't matter. And it, it, it's funny too. Like we started the podcast with the, with the Wilson's you know, profile of, of the coach who didn't believe in tactics and, and Cox starts his tactics blog off here being like, yeah, this, the tactics didn't, didn't matter today in the game. Um, but I think it's funny too, like this is a, a tension we will see f forever and to this day we deal with, uh, and I lose sleep over is, so he, his starting point is actually that tactics do always win games. 
Mm. And and his exception here, like, because he's making a point, is like today it didn't happen. Mm. Sometimes sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's sometimes just the uh, ref fucks you over, but you the know, ref fucks you over. Otherwise, Sir Alex Ferguson is the guy who's going to decide this game. Yeah, and I and I do think, um, you know, so, I mean, some of that might just be uh, some rhetoric here and poetic license, but I, that's an interesting thing to to see at the very beginning of tactics writing right because i that is not a resolved statement for sure i love that he starts with one where he says tactics didn't matter today mm. because, because i think my politics are that like it often doesn't uh, mm. you know there there's the, the players and there's differences in talent and then there's also luck like tactics has got to get in line between these other factors that's my politics right doesn't mean uh, that, we, that we can solve soccer without tactics and you know so um i also want to say on the very first sentence football is not chess you know people are are constantly analogizing football to chess uh and usually when they do that they're thinking of the manager as the chess player and the players are pieces so what you're really saying when you say football is not chess is the manager does not decide the game. The manager does not make the decisions in the game that are going to determine the result. Now, football may be more like, you know, blitz chess or drunk bullet chess played by the players yeah. with a few seconds to decide, you know, I, I, to, to my mind, that's like a better analogy for how tactics actually work, but that's already taking us far afield. So let's, let's get back to, you know, I would encourage listeners to go, um, click around in these old zonal marking archives to get a, a sense of these, these posts. They're full of, like, they're full of color and life. Um, I think on like his, his first post, you know, he gets a comment uh, and he's like, wow, I wasn't expecting any comments, which is funny to see that, you know, years and years later. Um, but that's, I mean, I, I think our, our description here of the, the diagram of, I don't know how many words this is, less than a thousand. Yeah, uh, words like of, words. It's a good blog length. Yeah, yeah. Um, this becomes, I think, the bread and butter of of the site, um, and it's it's important because it it continues that tradition of um, of the match report of the observed soccer game as the sort of data point and the analysis um, continuing that tradition on from from Wilson's and the pyramid. You know, when we look back at blog posts like this one it sounds sort of simplistic now it talks a lot about formations you know very high level abstraction stuff uh it's, it's usually short you know it makes one or two points about how the game played out uh it's not getting into all the the nitty-gritty of tactics but that also made it like really fun to read he gets straight to the ideas uh yeah. there's a little bit of personality it's not this dry i honestly almost like any blog post that like contains the word analysis i just like close it immediately i don't <laughs> it. i hate that word so much uh it's <laughs> and and that's not what he's doing he's telling a story and the story yeah. does explain how the game works but it's not like a fucking like um, science project and it's not it's not boring yeah, it's it's not a philosophical treatise either right it's he's he's observing the games and... yeah yeah, so the the next one I've got on the list here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is this. I think the same month, November 2009, he's got a um, to give a to give a different flavor of. There's the match recap, and then there's also more of the like one-off concept piece here. He's got something about Brazil's uh, formation diagrams. Mm -hmm. This one starts off. Uh, 
you know, important to note because he he's referencing jo uh, Jonathan Wilson uh, hmm. column or or a, or a sport blog. He, he fawns over him for a minute, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like this outstanding football article of the of the year. It was written by Jonathan Wilson. He, you know, he what does he call him here? He's uh, yeah. He says trying to expand on Mr. Wilson's excellent prose would be suicidal. But since the piece came without diagrams, a sacrilege. Here's a brief summary with visual aids. It it is interesting to me that Cox felt so strongly about diagrams as an important way of uh, yeah. explaining the tactic story. It is a little bit like a dancing about architecture problem, right? To be writing about a uh, team's formation instead of just diagramming it. So he, he he's showing that he shows the exact same uh, formation. Uh, it's kind of like a lops. I mean, I'm staring at it thinking it's kind of like a lopsided. Uh, well, I think his point is it's either a lopsided diamond, diamond or it's a lopsided 4-2-3-1. And the only thing he changes, it's almost like an optical illusion trick, yeah. is he, he draws different lines between the little dots. Yeah, it's like the duck and rabbit or the old <laughs> young woman, old woman thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah and, and he, he even keeps the same movement arrows on. So he's got like the yeah. players sort of quote unquote average positions, right? They're abstracted uh, positions. Uh, and then he's got movement arrows showing like, yeah, this one midfielder on the right side got up the right wing a little bit more uh, than the left winger. But then in order to explain, you know, formation notation, how we talk about formations, he draws little black lines, uh, where in one way he draws it as a like a four two three one, and the other way he draws it as a four four two diamond or something. Yeah, and I think he says, you know, Europeans, you know, see this as a a four two three one, and and South Americans see it as a diamond. And you're talking about this would yeah. that, that would be a very Jonathan Wilson sort of observation as well on the uh, different yeah. cultures, but. But it's a very important point to talk about because, as we even talked about in the Pep Guardiola episode, when we kind of looked at what was English tactics writing like in 2006, uh, you know, uh, so much of it was focused on formations. And the idea was yeah. that tactics are starting formations. And like, if you play a uh, four or five one, like you have to have this certain kind of center forward and like the formation determines how everybody plays. So, if that's your idea of what tactics are, and yet, you know, two people can look at the same game and whatever and be like, this is a 4-4-2 diamond or this is a 4-2-3-1. And supposedly all these theoretical advantages and all these player roles are supposed to flow from this formation notation. Yeah. That's a big problem, right? Because like all the things that we say about a 4-2-3-1 and all the things that we say about a 4-4-2 diamond are very different. Uh, and so they shouldn't look the same on the pitch, and yet they sort of can. I love that that perspective, and um, it is so interesting to see then the stereotypical, like I would say, problems we would imagine today with different biases that analytics writing and tactics writing have. But I love that he sort of problematizes the whole thing at the beginning, right? And the first post you read, he was like, "Tactics don't always decide the game. Football is not chess." But mm -hmm. here's my blog about tactics. And the second one, he's like, here's the same formation. You can see it a different from different way, depending on how you're looking at it. And it's and it doesn't capture everything. But I'm also going to continue to use formation diagrams, you know, mm -hmm. you know th throughout. Um so so he's there's a certain honesty, I think, that that's really fun to find looking back at these really early ones. Again, there's not many people doing this 
in November of 2009. Yeah. It's just kind of him. But I think that he's also starting to point the way toward, look, we, we have to move past just formation notation. That is always going to be an insufficient way to describe the game, to describe whatever tactics are. And so I think the logical next step from formation notation is let's start to talk about player roles within these formations, right? Probably the easiest way to uh, document that shift is to look to his uh, glossary, I think he calls it. What's interesting to me about this glossary, well, well a few things. Uh, one is that it's largely foreign terms, uh, you know, stuff like Tricortista, Mazzala, and, you know, all these things have like English equivalents or, you know, ways that we could describe them in English. But uh, at the time, I think there was a real, it was, it was really cool to like use uh, foreign names for player roles. And some people still do that, but uh, that also, I think, probably points to sort of the paucity of English tactics writing uh, in the previous decade, right? That, like, we just weren't confident that we could actually describe player roles or or the way the tactics work uh, by using English terms. We had to point to Italy, where people had, you know, actually, like, written about what is a tricortista and how does he operate. Yeah, and it goes back to a couple of points from... The, you know the podcast so far today which is like, well, one is all this tactic stuff builds on previous tactics and so and it's not always in, in your the language uh that that you write in so it he's also trying to define his terms to your point beyond he's trying to define his uh the, the framework by using these formation graphics and changing up the way he he'd like to see them relative to what it, what he sees out there which is not a lot relative to the more not stale but static classical diagrams that that wilson uses in inverting the pyramid so he's doing the he's doing he's trying to find his language right of how he's going to try to blog about tactics and part part of this is trying to borrow terms yeah uh, and and wilson's tactics history you know all the way down to the title is really about a progress from one dominant formation to the next and uh, Wilson is attentive to players' qualities and to yeah, the way yeah. that certain players, you know, can change, play different roles and change the way that the formation is interpreted and how it looks on the pitch. Uh, but but ultimately, that's his story, right? It's a progress from the two three five to the WM to the, et cetera, et cetera, right? And uh, Cox is saying, look, like I I can't blog that way. I can't just say you know Chelsea played a four four two this week and Man United played a four two three one. That's not going to be and the ref made a bad decision. Right. Um, and, and so the next step is, well, I need to describe how each of the players played within these formations. Uh, the upshot is that almost this entire glossary, I think like, you know, 90% of it or more is literally just like foreign names for player roles so that he yep. can add that extra dimension. Just like he looked at these abstract, you know, starting formation graphics and said, like, I can add a little bit of nuance by moving this player a little bit to the left or a little bit deeper and adding this arrow that showed that this player was getting up the pitch more. Uh, you know, the player roles are kind of the next step in that evolution of how we explain tactics. You know, that's a good segue, I think, into the, the next post we'll read of his, whereas he sort of comes up with his own uh, player role that he wants to highlight in a, in a post, mm -hmm. um, where this post is from December of, of 2010, so we're about a year on in. And he's, it's titled Introducing the Central Winger. 
and this this is uh is funny for a number of reasons to me but one of them you know back to the music analogy one when you're trying to come up with a band uh because you've seen uh the velvet underground play and you're starting a band you have no idea what to call your band one thing that a lot of bands do is they name their band after a song of like their favorite band yeah i suddenly can't think of a good example no but yeah no it totally happens Lady Gaga is named after Radio Gaga by Queen. That's a terrible example, but it's there you go. it's one of the oldest tricks in the book for naming for naming your band. And uh, we will get to someday, but there is a there will be a, a prominent analytics blogger who starts a blog called The Central Winger, uh, at, which is inspired by this hit song by uh, uh, the the Zonal Underground here. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, so... yeah, and then again, like that's not a tactics blogger. That is an analytics blogger uh, who was reading this early on and was so inspired by it that he named again not a tactics blog. He named an analytics blog after a specific post by Michael Cox on this purportedly, you know, tactics site. Yeah, well, and and, and we we haven't touched that enough probably, but it's so like zonal marketing is such an important blog in the history of both sides, both tracks of this analytics and tactics because. Nerdy soccer bloggers read nerdy soccer stuff, and they essentially had an endless appetite for it. And so I I think when we were walking through early um, Howard Hamilton posts and early Chris Anderson posts, and they're living in this world where there's there's not a big blog role because there aren't a lot of their peers around, they are referencing zonal marking very often. Like he's out there, right? Everyone's reading Michael Cox. Later on, there would be this idea that there was a dichotomy between these ways of understanding yeah. the game, but these categories didn't exist then. And it was really just people who wanted to understand the game in some more detailed way were all reading each other. And, you know, who gave a shit if they were quote unquote tactics or analytics bloggers because they certainly didn't care. They were all of that because if you want to understand the game, you you need to be all of that. 100% right. Yeah. And and so we, we won't spend a ton of time on the central winger post because this phenomenon you're talking about is is better exemplified in, in the next one but I, but i do think it you know he's seeing that here in 2010 he's, he's referencing the 2010 world cup mm-hmm. he was he was seeing these players that grew up as wingers sort of getting slotted into this dominant paradigm of the 4-2-3-1 that was that was everywhere in the the summer of 2010 yeah and and so he he's saying you know um and th- this would have been a jonathan wilson uh, motif as well, the sort of dying, you know, number 10, the Raquel May types. The number uh, 10 has always been dying. They've That's been like dying. The attribute of number 10 <laughs> is that they're always dying. But this is this is interesting because he's saying number 10 died and then it was actually kind of resurrected by the rise of the 4-2-3-1. Like, oh, yeah. shit, we need a, a number 10 again, somebody who can play between the lines. That's right. Uh, and and so we've we've turned all these talented, young, you know, technical players into wingers, but since we're playing a 4-2-3-1, one of those guys has to go between the lines. And so we get guys like uh, the the example that talks about the most in this post is Mesut Ozil, who, who started yeah. at Schalke as a left winger. And, you know, by the time he got to Bremen and certainly at Real Madrid, he was a, he was a classic number 10. He was playing between the lines and, you know, using that, his, his silky feet to like find these little tiny pockets of space and be a playmaker and all that. Uh, but, but what makes a central winger is that, you know, when you put a winger between the lines uh and there's not a ton of space like there used to be in the good old days you know 
No they're, not, they're not just going to sit, you know, between the lines with, with four defenders in their media vicinity and wait to receive a ball that never comes. What they're yeah. going to do is they're going to pop out to the wings. And that's his definition of a central winger is it's this player who probably grew up on the wings, got stuck in a central attacking midfielder role. And the way that they interpret that role is to go receive on either wing, right? To yeah. Sometimes they play on the right, sometimes the left, you know, they're putting in a lot of crosses, um, they're they're not traditional wingers. They're not playing north south, but they are receiving in those wide areas. Yeah, you can't you can't take the winger out of the central winger. There there are tendencies and different ways they interpret the game that are not yeah to your point strictly formational. I I it's a great evolution again. And uh, you know as we're trying to find the right examples of these posts, right? But he gets he starts by problematizing tactics, problematizing formations, right? Mm-hmm. And and then even problematizing player classical player roles, right? Mm-hmm. To to identify that there's actually players that are in those player roles, um, and they they have their own tendencies and their and their own ideas about the game. This post is also uh, interesting because we see him here, and to your point, this this false uh, dichotomy between um, tactics and and. Uh, and, and analytics, we see him going to the Guardian chalkboards. You know, he's got a section of this blog post called Evidence. You know, he says, with the use of chalkboards, we find there is more to this idea than mere theory, right? So it's, <laughs> it's not just a theoretical treatise. Um, the Guardian chalkboards, by the way, I, I don't know if people listening to this are going to know what those are, but this was really yeah. the first time that event data became widely available to the public. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was a, a interactive, like, pitch tool, right? Where you can plot certain events, uh, you know, yeah. see all the players' passes or passes received or whatever, and this was like revolutionary. It's cool. You, if if you go to this blog post, we'll put it in the, you know, our our uh, Substack. You can see the kind of evidence-based, not it's not exactly data viz, but it is data viz. Your chalkboards passes uh, being being charted out on a pitch to sort of yeah, prove his but points. He's, he's showing like you know yeah. Ozo might have lined up as the number 10 playing in the center of a 4-2-3-1, but if you look at where he receives his passes or where he plays his passes, it's actually like all on the left and right wings. And I think he also uses in this post an average position viz, which is great because he's showing, yeah, like if you play on both wings, it's going to show your average position is in the center of the pitch, but you know the but you're not Rakome. the way that yeah. you get that that central average position could mean two totally different roles right he's again yeah he's he's problematizing uh the 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 player role the formation the average it's cool that he has the average formation visualization here he's using data uh, in 2000 and what's this one this yeah december 2010 right so he's uh just trying to place it in my head here. Howard Hamilton would be around. Chris Anderson would be sort of getting started. And so would Sarah Rudd at this point mm-hmm. uh, at, at the end of 2010. And then the last thing he has here is he also has screenshots from uh, from the games with little arrows and stuff, right? So we talked about how, how tactics blogging is trying to find its way. What's the best way to represent the ideas? He uses all he starts in this blog. He's using all sorts of different um you know visualizations and and media to try to like prove his point which is which is uh not always going to be the where tactics blogging is focused right it's it's not always here's an idea and here and i went to I, and i pulled some data or i tried to 
try to find evidence for it. Um, yeah, it's interesting that he even feels the need to say like this is not mere theory. Like let's let's literally yeah. have a section called evidence. I think that the maybe more typical way is just like if I'm a tactics blogger and you find me worth reading, it's because you trust that I've watched the game very closely, and the evidence is just that I am describing it in a way that you know kind of jibes with what you saw and how you understand the game to work. It's interesting that early on, and I've personally felt this, like, you know, yeah. if, if you're starting out as a writer who not everybody uh, knows, you know, they don't know if they can trust you, like data can be a good way to say, look, this yeah. thing I'm talking about is real. And I think that that's kind of one of many ways that he built credibility with his readers early on. All right, last post. Yeah, so the last one I want to highlight for you guys is is uh, to, to, to put a, some punctuation on this idea again that in the beginning maybe soccer was formless and and the, there was a dark void as as wilson says but in the beginning of soccer nerdy blogging uh painting the picture as two distinct camps or camps in in conflict with one another between tactics and analytics um, is, is more false than we often think about so this last post that Michael Cox does in January of 2010. Um, yeah, we say last post, but this is still like actually one of his first posts on his blog that went on for a few more years. Yeah. And 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 this blog goes on to be very influential and we're probably going to refer back to it many more times. Uh, yeah. But but we're only looking at the first few months when this blog is just getting off the ground. And yeah. when it's just getting off the ground. One of the very first things he does, as you said, was basically write an analytics blog. That's right. That's what he does here. This post is called League Comparison Number 3, Shooting and Goals. You know, in the last post we, we talked about, we showed him sort of like using evidence to back up his his um, theories, uh, using chalkboards and data visualizations like, you know, average position maps and chalkboards, these sorts of things. But here... Um, you know, it looks like we're picking him up in part three. So he already had a post on passing and another on crossing. But in this one, he's pulling data on shots across the five major European leagues. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it's, you know, this is January of 2010. Cox is writing this on his blog, Zonal Marking. We started PostScript with Chris Anderson in the summer of 2010. He was doing the same thing. He was pulling... Yeah. shot totals by league and trying to find the patterns to understand what made a team good basically and we had we had the spiritual birth of soccer analytics blogging where uh you know sarah rudd intervened and then they had a discussion and cross-linked to each other's blogs but here's michael cox not on an analytics blog but on a tactics blog in Working january of 2010 basically, basically the same data right and asking very similar questions. I, I think he said he got this data from Sky Sports. Is that right? Yeah. So he was he didn't doesn't look like he had an Opta F24 feed. You know, he no, no. he uh this was basic stuff, the kind of stuff that, that Anderson started with as well, league totals. So he he he's doing bar charts. He is a uh, uh his tactics diagrams, his his formation diagrams are much more beautiful than these uh uh, <laughs> the bar, these the bar charts, we, we got to describe these. They're, 
they're like uh, uh slightly 3d shaded excel bar charts uh <laughs> i didn't know excel could do this this is like lotus uh one two th- no i'm just kidding this is 2010 so it's probably excel but he you know his bar charts are on the x-axis it's the leagues england germany spain italy and france and on the y-axis he's showing average goals per game across those leagues he's showing average shots per game across those leagues He's doing a little bit of math, just just like Chris Anderson does in the summer of 2010, to come up with shooting accuracy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shots on target versus shots per game. But he ends with kind of an interesting little. I mean, almost seems effortless. A a reference to Charles Hughes. So what he this mm-hmm. last graph of his, on the y-axis, he's got goals per game, and he, he's he's looking across these big five leagues. Yeah. On the x on the on the x axis, he it's percentage of passes that were hit long. Yeah, so it's it's a scatter plot. Uh, yeah, goals per game versus percentage of passes is hit long. Uh, it's at a league season level, so there are only five points on this scatter plot. You know, different colors for for different leagues, but they form a perfect diagonal line, right? On his which on- is uh, which you know when you when you look at shots and goals and when you look at uh shots on target and goals you might expect some really close correlations like that and draw perfect lines they're, they're not perfect but they the relationship is unsurprising this, this one is kind of like a a neat little uh finding here it's surprising to me now i i would be very like i'm curious right now whether this still holds up because it's not intuitive why there would be this almost perfect correlation between a league's percentage of passes hit long and a league's goal scored per game. Yeah. And so to be clear, what's happening is England hits the most long balls here in, in 2010. And they also have the highest goals per game. Right. So, um, and the, the lowest would be France. I, I, I'll just read a little bit of this. Cause it's like, uh, we can react in real time. Yeah. The way he reasons about this chart is also, I think, uh, good. Yeah. So he says, look at that correlation. Uh, granted, there, there may be only five figures to plot, but there's an undeniable link between the percentage of long passes and the number of goals scored. But this, of course, is exactly the kind of analysis that led Charles Hughes to write the infamous The Winning Formula, which put forward the idea that the best way of scoring goals was to quickly get the ball into the positions of maximum opportunity, i.e. within shooting distance of goal, which ultimately resulted in the now much maligned long ball game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, th- th- this is ancient, you know, analytics lore with Charles Reap and Charles Hughes. And so Cox says, uh, one should not, of course, see this graph and assume that the best way to score goals is to punt the ball long. That, in part, was the mistake many managers made having read Hughes' work. Because this analysis is league-wide rather than looking at individual teams, the goal scored figure increasing is not necessarily a positive thing for the teams involved. Um you know, he he posits, hey, Arsenal are sure, certainly not hitting the most long balls, but they're leading the league in, in goals here. Um, but they but, probably weren't leading the league in goals allowed, right? And this is total exactly. sport in the game. And and essentially what we're seeing here is that more long balls equals a more open game, which yes, the more goals total uh, at both ends of the pitch. Yeah, so, you know, this is not the the prototypical – Michael Cox, zonalmarking.net blog post. It is not the sort of blog post that will inspire uh, other tactical blogs going forward, the likes of Spilverlagerung and, and others. 
Um, but it's it's important to remember that in 2009, 2010, this guy's just blogging, right? He's uh, he's trying to explore different different insights and different observations about the game. He's coming at it from a variety of angles, um, and uh, that that includes statistical analysis, right? That includes um, graphs and and charts, and and uh, we know today that he you know he influenced um, not only tactical writers but analytics writers and and uh, the the whole gamut here. Yeah. So look, like in order to understand the game, you have to be able to bring these different modes of thought to bear. And, and you also critically have to be reading people who think about the game in different ways than you do. And that's one of the beautiful things that we see with zonal marking is that it really helps. Like if you look at zonal marking in 2012 compared to in 2010, and you look at the blog role and you look at the comments and you look at the interactions that it's getting on Twitter, like this entire blogosphere has, has bloomed uh, really from this one seed of a blog. The analytics bloggers were great and they did help kind of start their own little community uh, that as we've said, is still going to this day. But the thing that took nerdy soccer blogging mainstream, I think more than anything was, was this one blog. And you know, whether we go to analytics or to tactics from here, uh, I think that we've sort of already demonstrated that those are not uh, two different tracks and and uh, we're, we're going to be talking about really one big discussion that carries over the next uh, 12 years of soccer uh, blogging. That's a good way to wrap it up. Uh, we're 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 going to talk about where we want to go from here because we're we're still honestly debating. Uh, do we do we go from uh, zonal marking to Spielberg Lagerung? Do we take detours into these other beautiful blogs that that started around this time? Uh, run a play, one of our favorites that maybe doesn't even fit the theme of the podcast, but I would love to do an episode just mm-hmm. about that other way of thinking about soccer. Uh, there are so many directions that you can go from 2010. Uh, you know, to 2012, 2014, like this is where our story really opens out. Uh, so we're going to talk about this and hopefully we'll be back uh, soon. Next episode. See you guys later. A is better than OK Computer. Je t'en amour